Hey, countries from all over the globe send delegates to the United Nations headquarters there along the East River in Manhattan, New York. Imagine, though, Isaiah being one of those delegates. The honorable ambassador from the nation of Judah, Isaiah, will speak to us now. Isaiah strides to the lectern to deliver his speech. And he reiterates the message that he's written and that we've been studying in chapters 13 through 24. Isaiah stands before the nations and he pronounces God's burden. His heavy judgment on the nations there in attendance. He delivers God's burden to Babylon and then Assyria and then Philistia and Moab and Damascus and the land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, and Egypt, and Edom, and Arabia, and Tyre. Even his own capital city, Jerusalem, doesn't escape God's judgment. And then his grand finale is a blistering series of judgments against the whole world. By the time he's done, Isaiah has made some bitter enemies. They probably would have tied the prophet of God to a concrete block and thrown him in the East River. You know those guys from New York. Isaiah was a brave and bold man of God. Now in chapter 20, he continues his judgment against Egypt and Ethiopia. He says, In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Now, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies have flip-flopped back and forth from the immediate to the future, from around 700 B.C. until the end of the age. Here, Isaiah helps us get our bearings. He pinpoints where he's at now on the timeline. The northern Hebrew kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. with the fall of Samaria. Next, in 711 B.C., their general, Tartan, the man mentioned here, conquers the coastal city of Ashdod. It was a Philistine city. And the fall of Ashdod sent word to Judah and Jerusalem that they were next in line for an Assyrian invasion. Verse 2. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Now here's another aspect of Isaiah's ministry that probably wouldn't have gone over very well at the United Nations. Imagine Isaiah in front of the esteemed ambassadors in the General Assembly, men from all around the world, delivering his message from God in the buff. Isaiah walked naked and barefoot. This was Isaiah's nude review. You can say the man stepped up and he spoke the bare facts, the naked truth. He delivered the message of God in the buff. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years 
for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. You know, some Bible teachers suggest that Isaiah didn't strip completely naked. He just sort of stripped down to his underwear, his undergarment. Like a man being processed into the prison population, he stripped down to his skivvies. And he was issued new prison garb. There there you go, there's some POWs. See, they're down to their skivvies. Isaiah dressed himself in the minimal uniform of a prisoner of war. And this sent a message. This whole idea was for Isaiah to send a message, a visual message to the people who saw him. They knew that his nakedness and his bare feet represented a POW. And this illustrated what was going to happen to Egypt and to Ethiopia. The Assyrians were going to come and invade and take them into captivity And their buttocks would be exposed. They would be naked and barefoot as they were hauled off into captivity. You know, Isaiah's bare buttocks and feet are just one example of the type of ministry that was given to many of the prophets. You know, they say a picture is better than a thousand words. And so God used living parables particularly in the Old Testament, spiritual skits to illustrate his burden to various people. You remember Ezekiel actually laid on his side for 390 days. You remember that? Hosea married a prostitute. It was an illustration to the nation how God felt about them, that he was married to a prostitute, that they had prostituted themselves and had gone after other gods and other idols. Jeremiah buried a sash along the banks of the Euphrates as a picture of how Judah would be taken to the land of Babylon and there remain captive for 70 years. In the New Testament, remember, Agabus the prophet, he tied up Paul with his own belt saying that the same man who who owns this belt, will be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. You know, all these little illustrations helped God deliver his message to the people. And here, Isaiah is told to walk naked and barefoot for three years as a sign to the people. (laughs) Now, whether that was 24 hours a day, 365 days, for three years, now that would really be a tough ministry. Even if it was a portion of the day for three years, that would still be a tough ministry. This would be a taxing ministry for Isaiah to fulfill. And yet it got me thinking, you know, as a pastor, I've discovered that there is an aspect to all sincere preaching that requires some self-revelation. When you preach, when you pastor, when you stand up in front of people, there there is some revealing of yourself that has to go on. Not literally, don't worry. But you got to be honest and you got to be vulnerable because people are watching you and people know you. And if you're not honest, nakedly honest about your struggles, they're going to sniff out your phoniness. You see, it might be rough, but all good Bible teaching requires some preaching in the buff. 
Verse 5. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation in Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? You see, Isaiah's prophecy of judgment on Egypt and Ethiopia was not just a message to those two nations, but it also spoke to God's people, Judah. For the Jews had forged an alliance with their neighbors in Africa to protect them against Assyria. And Isaiah is in essence saying to Jerusalem, Egypt will be no help to you. Ethiopia will be no help to you. Isaiah is teaching Jerusalem to put their trust in God, not in man. And that too is a lesson you and I need to learn. Hey, don't be foolish. Rather than put your trust in the doctor or in the union or in the government or in the coach or in the professor or in the school, put your trust in God. Chapter 21, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Now here's an odd expression, the wilderness of the sea. Sounds like an oxymoron. What is the desert of the sea? What is the dryness of the sea? Throughout the Bible, the sea is an idiom for humanity. You hear this used a lot, the vast sea of humanity. We know from the context of this passage that Isaiah is speaking of Babylon. And geographically, coming down from the north, Babylon was the gateway to the Persian Gulf. It was the desert before the sea. Spiritually speaking, it was a mirage. Babylon was the home to the world's wisdom and wealth and religion. But under the glitz and the glamour of Babylon, there was a dryness. There was a a emptiness and a desert. It, It literally was the wilderness of the sea. Now Isaiah speaks of Babylon in chapter 21. He says, a distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously. And the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O Media. All its sighing I have made to cease. Now during the days of Isaiah, Assyria was the world power, not Babylon. Isaiah lived a hundred years before the rise of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, in Isaiah's day, the city of Babylon was nothing but just a little hotbed of unrest right there on the Euphrates River. Yet here Isaiah not only speaks of Babylon, but he also speaks of the two groups that will eventually conquer and overthrow this future empire, the Elamites and the Medes. I say all that to to say this. We read Isaiah from the perspective of history. We see what he wrote as history, but in reality it was prophecy. He's making predictions here that won't come true for a hundred years. You know, we marvel from history's perspective, we marvel at the precision of his prophecies. That they are exact, that they came true, just as he said. Isaiah's first readers might have heard Babylon and scratched their head and wondered if this guy's nuts. Well, Isaiah speaks about Babylon. He says, therefore, my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. 
Prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. Now he's speaking here of the overthrow of Babylon. Daniel chapter 5 actually describes that night. You remember the feast of Belshazzar? The king was whining and dining his guests while the Medes and the Persians were upstream. They were damming up the Euphrates River. You remember the strategy of General Ugabaru? I like that name, Ugabaru. Some of you girls need to name your babies Ugabaru. I'd love to dedicate little Ugabaru. I like that. Say it with me, Ugabaru. Isn't that nice? Great name. Anyway, General Ugabaru, he was the general of the Medes and the Persians, and his army was camped upstream. You remember the Euphrates flowed under the walls of Babylon. So rather than go over the walls, the invaders diverted the river. They dried up the riverbed so their troops could march under the city walls of Babylon. This is how the city was conquered. The Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon without firing a shot. Verse 6 tells us, For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set up a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, it's fallen. And all the carved images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. This is the reaction of a faraway city when news arrives of Babylon's fall, of Babylon's destruction. And here again we see Isaiah blending the immediate with the future. Revelation 18 also speaks of events that occurs near the end of the age. John there sees another Babylon. Either a future rebuilt Babylon or a kingdom of the same idolatrous spirit as ancient Babylon that ends up taking its name. But this Babylon also topples. God rains down fire on this city. And in Revelation 18 verse 2, it's interesting that John uses the same language as Isaiah. He actually lifts it out of Isaiah. He puts into the mouth those who see the fall of Babylon. He says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. He quotes from Isaiah. And notice what the messenger here in Isaiah cries out. He says, a lion, my Lord. A lion is responsible for this fall of Babylon. And believe it or not, the fall of the future Babylon will also be at the claws of a lion. In John 5, we're told the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, he has prevailed. In the end, it's Jesus who will bring down the idolatrous systems of this world once and for all. When he returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. Well, God's judgment against Babylon ends in verse 10. He says, Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. You read verse 10 and you think of Revelation 14. There an angel appears in the clouds with a sharp sickle in his hand. And he thrusts his sickle into the earth and brings forth judgment. 
One day Jesus will return and remember what he'll do. He'll separate the wheat from the tares. There will be a harvest with the sickle of God. Now verse 11 is the burden against Duma. Here's another name for Edom. In fact, if you drop the E off of Edom, it's Doom or Duma. The word means silent. And here's a play on words. The idea here is that soon God's judgment will come to Edom. The sounds of work and play that have been heard in her streets will suddenly become silent. Silence will now fall upon Edom. You remember the Edomites lived south of the Dead Sea. Their stronghold was the rock fortress of Petra. That's where Indiana Jones found the Holy Grail. You remember that. They were kin to the Moabites. We talk about Moab in chapters 14 and 15. And Isaiah predicted that Assyria would invade Moab. While they were at it, they pressed further south into Edom. And here's the burden against Edom. Verse 11. He calls to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. The first two verses of Isaiah 14 predicted a nighttime invasion against the cities of Moab. And apparently that's how Assyria also defeated the Edomites. Verse 13 begins the burden against Arabia. So we've gone from Edom now to Arabia. Isaiah here speaks to present day Saudi Arabia and Yemen, and Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. These are all the nations that would be, that, that are found on the Arabian Peninsula. Which reminds me, by the way, what do they call a first offender in Saudi Arabia? Anybody know? They call him Lefty. A lefty. Now imagine the reaction of a Jewish Isaiah, a Jewish prophet, walking naked through the streets of Riyadh, proclaiming God's judgment on Arabia. When they're done with him, he wouldn't just be called lefty. (laughs) Can think that one through. Isaiah here, he has a burden against Arabia. He says, in the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companions of Dedanites. You know, when you think of the Arabian Peninsula, man, you think of barren hills, you think of sand-blown deserts. Every now and then a little pool in the midst of a date palm grove, you know, an oasis. But here Isaiah speaks of the forest in Arabia. You know, today the forest in Saudi Arabia is in the southwest corner of the nation in the Asir Mountains. Here's a picture of it. In Bible times, the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula was much wetter and much cooler and therefore there were more forest areas on the peninsula. He goes on, he says, O inhabitants of the land of Tima, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, And from the distress of war. You know, Dedan and Tima were nomadic tribes that roamed the Arabian Peninsula. Evidently, the Arabians narrowly escaped the destruction of the invader. Verse 16, For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, 
according to the year of a hard man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Again, Kedar was another of the tribes, the Bedouin tribes, that roamed across Arabia. They roamed the sands of, of northern Arabia. And here Kedar uh, is told that even his mighty men will fall uh, by the sword. You know, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael, which would have made Abraham his grandpa. But Kedar, along with the other Arabians, will fall. Now, chapter 22 is the burden against the valley of vision. And again, this is a strange phrase. Valley of vision? I mean, usually, people who want to gain perspective and to gain vision, they don't go into the valley, do they? They they go to the tower, or they go on top of the mountain, or they go on top of the walls to get vision. Here, the valley of vision is an oxymoron. And it was intended to indicate how low the spiritual state of these people had had gone. Jerusalem was the valley of vision. Jerusalem was the place that had become steeped in idolatry. He's basically saying Jerusalem is so low they can't see over their shoelaces. And that's low. Now Isaiah says, what ails you now? That you have all gone up to the housetops. You who are full of noise. A tumultuous city. A joyous city. In other words, you used to dance in the streets. Some of you have danced in the streets of Jerusalem. Donna has danced in the streets of You should see Donna Boogie when she, when she has to. She was dancing. We were all dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. We were there during Independence Day one year. And we had a wonderful time there in Jerusalem. He's saying you used to dance in the streets, but now you've retreated to the housetops. Judgment has come. He says, your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. In other words, you've given up without a fight. You know, they they fought like defeated men. And your girls, Donna, are, are, are over here chuckling about the thought of you dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. I picked up on that, didn't I? You should have seen her, though. She, she, was, she was good. Oh, you've seen it on video, huh? Well, we're back to the text. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls And of crying to the mountain, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Isaiah sees the Elamites even among this army that invades Jerusalem. Verse 7, it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You know, the resident, rather than trust in God, they, they broke down their houses and they used the materials to sort of fortify the walls and the gates. 
You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. In preparation for the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem, it occurred in 701 B.C., King Hezekiah built a tunnel. This tunnel went from the Gihon Spring, the city's chief water supply, all the way to the Pool of Siloam. The spring was outside the walls. The Pool of Siloam was inside the walls. You remember Jesus worked one of his miracles at the Pool of Siloam. This tunnel was quite a feat of engineering. Today you can go to Jerusalem. You can actually walk up this tunnel. It runs 1,750 feet in length. It's seven feet high. It's cut through solid rock. In fact, if you go with us to Jerusalem next May, you can go together and we'll all go down and we'll see the entranceway there to the Hezekiah Tunnel. The tunnel gave the city an internal water supply. It brought the water of the city from outside the Gihon Spring into the city behind the walls to the Pool of Siloam. This was crucial to withstand any kind of siege from any military army that might attack. And yet Isaiah rebukes the Jews in verse 11. He says, But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. In other words, they were better at their fortifications than they were at their faith in God. We need to be careful lest we trust in our own ingenuity and in our own resources rather than in God. You know, never forget, man looks for better methods God looks for better men. Verse 12, And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness. You know, I could make a joke there about baldness, but, but I'm not going to tonight. Just to let you know. Any of you shining heads... Don't worry, I'm not picking on you tonight. I'm laying off of you. Slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You see, some of the Jews had adopted this fatalistic, this narcissistic attitude. You know, they, they took the approach. Oh, what comes will come. Life is short, man. Play hard. Live it up while you can. Hey, reach for the high life while you have a chance. He says, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Fatalism forfeits your opportunity to repent. There is something tonight that you can do about your future. Some of you might feel hopeless. Some of you might feel fatalistic. Oh, what will come will come. You feel like you're a victim of your circumstances. No, there is something that you can do about your future that will radically change your future, and you can do it tonight. You can repent. You can repent of your sin, and you can believe in Jesus, and He will meet you at that point in your life, and He'll begin to do work in you, on you, and through you. Repent and believe. Don't, don't cop out. Don't give up. Verse 15 is God's judgment on a Jerusalem official who must have really made God mad. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward to Shebna, 
who is over the house and say, What have you here and whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here? In other words, carved out a tomb or a monument. As he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. Now, Shebna was a high official in the court of King Hezekiah. He was perhaps the secretary of state. But what upset God was his pride. Did did you know that pride always upsets God? Pride is the sin by which the angels fell. God hates pride. This man was full of it. He made a mausoleum or a monument to himself. He got the big head. He figured that he would die an important person and that he needed to be honored. In essence, he had the nerve to write his own obituary and brag on himself. You know, he arranged ahead of time for Ashley to sing at his funeral. Sort of. Kind of the same thing. But he, but he builds this mausoleum, you know, over his tomb. Like he's going to be a big guy. And, and that's, that's his problem. Verse 18, though, says, He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die. And there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office. And from your position, he will put you down. This monument that he builds over his tomb, it's going to do him no good. Because he's never going to be buried there. He's going to be driven from Jerusalem. He's going to die in exile. You know, God has a way of humbling the proud. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Shibna's job and position will be given to Eliakim. You know, the man who promotes himself is the man who gets demoted by God. Jesus said the same thing. He said, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself and you'll be abased. And then he says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Notice this now, the key of the house of David. This was the king's keys. This was a symbol of royal authority. And the official who possessed these keys had absolute authority. It's interesting, when Jesus writes to the church of Philadelphia, in Revelation 3, verse 7, he quotes Isaiah 22. And he applies this passage to himself. Apparently, Isaiah was speaking ahead of time of Jesus when he said, He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's right out of Revelation 3 and Isaiah 22. Eliakim's royal keys and authority were eventually taken by Jesus. And here's an exciting truth about serving Jesus. He can open doors that are closed to you and closed to me. Jesus can open doors that we can't. 
Doors of opportunity. Doors of blessing. Doors of employment. Doors of new venture. Doors of education. He can also close doors that no one can open. He can seal and secure his people. You know, the church in Philadelphia, we're told, had a little strength. But they used what they had. They had faith enough to walk through the doors that God opened for them. And I trust that you'll have that same kind of faith. Because our Lord is the Lord who can open doors that we can't. Remember that. When you face a closed door. When somebody slams a door in your face. Remember that. That Jesus can open doors that we can't. Verse 23 I will fasten him a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now this peg is a tent peg. It's a stake that holds down the side of the tent so that it doesn't blow away in a stiff wind. And this passage is also prophetic of Jesus. He's saying that the survival, the longevity of the Jewish people is ultimately based on their faithfulness to Jesus. He's the peg on which the future of their nation hangs. Israel has seen its share of storms over the years, but the promises of Jesus are what hold the nation steady and secure. And likewise, I hope you've made Jesus your tent peg. Are you hanging all of your hopes and dreams and aspirations and future on the will and words of Jesus? You should be. Jesus can endure any storm. He can hold your life steady if you'll attach your faith to the tent peg. Chapter 22 closes. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And if you have eyes to see, I hope you, you see the prophecy here of Jesus and his atonement. Jesus is the tent peg. And not only do we hang our hopes on Jesus, what else do we hang on him? We hang our sins. And, and we hang our, our forgiveness on Jesus. For three days, Jesus was removed from his place as the tent peg will be. He was hung on a Roman cross, and the burden of our sin was hung on him. And Jesus was cut off so that we could be reattached and reunited to God and to his family. And so the question tonight is, are you fastened to the tent peg? Have you taken your sin and fastened it to the tent peg. Jesus was cut off so that you could be reconnected to God. Well, chapter 23 is the burden against Tyre. Not Firestone. Not Goodyear. That's not the kind of tires I'm talking about. But the city of Tyre. The city of Tyre was a Phoenician town 15 miles north of Israel's current border with Lebanon. And it was a port city. Tyre and Sidon were the glory of the Phoenicians. You've heard about the Phoenicians. They were the ancient mariners. They were the sailors of the ancient world. They were expert navigators and skilled shipbuilders. They sailed the sea 
combing for commerce. And yet Isaiah cries out against them. He says, Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Ships of Tarshish carried traders from the eastern Mediterranean, and they came and they did commerce and business with Tyre and the Phoenicians. This Tarshish is an interesting place. It comes up over and over again in the Bible. You remember Jonah boarded a boat for where? For Tarshish. Where was Tarshish? We really don't know. All we know is that it was the farthest destination east that Jonah could travel, or at least they could sell him a ticket, you know, so he could get as far away from God as possible. Ezekiel 27 verse 12 mentions that Tarshish traded in tin. And that has caused Bible students to speculate that perhaps Tarshish and Britannia or Britain were one and the same possible. History teaches us that the Phoenicians did trade in the British Isles. Wherever they were from, here the prophecy sees the ships from Tarshish. They they come and they sail close and they see the judgment of Tyre from a distance as far away as Cyprus. And if you look at a map, Cyprus was 140 miles east of Phoenicia. And yet they see the destruction of Tyre. Well, that's pretty far away to see the destruction of a city. There must have been some severe damage, some kind of incredible uh, catastrophe. You remember when Jesus judged his hometown of Capernaum? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 21? He said, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Wow, you know, these were Phoenician cities. And they were never made privy to the miracles of Jesus, at least like the cities of Galilee were. And remember the principle. I hope you teach it to your teenagers. With privilege comes responsibility. This is true spiritually. With privilege comes responsibility. And Jesus was saying to the cities of Galilee, He says, you've had great privilege. And with that comes great responsibility. If the people of Tyre had had your privilege, they would have repented long ago. He said that to Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 2. But still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Sihor, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the... Na- the Shehor, by the way, was the Nile River there in Egypt. Uh, you know, they say that a lot of the Egyptians, they're, they're, they're just in denial. They're in denial. You get it? Denial. Anyway, Shehor means the Nile River. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken and strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. In other words, the sea has no family. The sea has no allegiances. And thus it provides you no protection. The Sidon and Tyre are on their own, he says. Verse 5, when the report reaches Egypt, They also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Well, you inhabitants of the coastland, is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days, 
whose feet carried her far off to dwell. Tyre was founded around the year 2000 BC. Very old city. It reached its zenith in about 1000 AD, 1000 BC, 1000 years later. And the Phoenicians in their, in their height, they established these crown colonies all around the world. Carthage in North Africa was a Phoenician city. And this is why he says, who has taken this council against Tyre, the crowning city? This was the city who crowned the other cities. Whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. Apparently the Phoenician influence was everywhere, Isaiah says. And yet God is going to judge the city. He said, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory. To bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. I told you God hated pride. He does. Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. You know, the residents of Tyre, they can board their boats. They can sail to Cyprus. They can try to escape God's judgment. But his judgment will follow them. You know, God is the hound of heaven. He'll track you down. You cannot run from God. He says, behold the land of the Chaldeans. This people, which was not. Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Ancient Tyre was actually two cities. There was an inland city and there was an island city. The inland city was conquered twice by the Assyrians and then later by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Both times it occurred in the 7th century BC. The inland city, I'm sorry, the island city was conquered by Alexander the Great in the 4th century. As a matter of fact, we're going to learn more about that when we get over to Ezekiel. Verse 14. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years. Check it out. According to the days of one king. Now when the Babylonians defeated Judah, they took the Jews back to Babylon into captivity for 70 years. And perhaps Tyre's 70 years of abandonment correspond with Judah's captivity in some way. Notice, though, we're told that the days of one king equals how many years? Seventy years. Now, there's a debate over what actually constitutes a biblical generation. Is it 40 years? You remember the first generation that came out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Could be. Here, though, it seems that a generation is 70 years. The days of one king equals 70 years. Now here's why this is important. Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24. Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Now in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end of the age, the end of time, and his second coming to the earth. 
And he says that the generation that sees the budding of the fig tree will also see his return to planet earth and all the accompanying events. Of course, this brings up two questions. What is the budding of the fig tree? And how long is a generation? Now, throughout the scripture, the fig tree is a type of Israel. And its budding could be the nation's reestablishment, which occurred in 1948. Now, if you add 70 years to 1948, you get 2018. But the rapture occurs before the final seven years of history. Thus, could the rapture occur in 2011? That'd make it pretty close, wouldn't it? It could be that the budding of the fig tree is the retaking of Jerusalem. Now, that didn't occur until 1967. Thus, the rapture would then occur in 2030. Or it could be that the budding of the fig tree corresponds with some other date that we're not properly identifying. Thus, our speculation is is really uh, (laughs) speculation. You remember, Jesus told us that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. But we are expected to know the times and the seasons. And in my opinion, I think we're getting really close. Well, Isaiah continues. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of the 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up. For her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. In the end, Tyre is conquered and her wealth is distributed among God's people. We're going to find another amazing prophecy about Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 27. Now Isaiah 24 through 27 is known as the little apocalypse. All of a sudden the judgments now become global. Isaiah is no longer speaking to specific nations. You're going to catch his tone. He now starts talking to the whole world. These chapters parallel the book of Revelation. Verse 1 sets the tone. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants. I believe that Isaiah 24 through 27 speaks of what the New Testament calls the great tribulation. The seven years just before Jesus comes again and judges this wicked world. You know, did you know that just as water has a boiling point, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, so does God's anger. It too reaches a boil. And when it reaches that level, whatever that temperature happens to be, when God's anger reaches His boiling point, it leaves the pan. 
And it spills over the sides. Or it leaves as fumes and as gas. Likewise, God's anger eventually spills out of the bowl. Now this helps you understand Revelation 6 through 19. Because that describes this future seven year period when this occurs. There's seven bowl judgments where God's wrath spills over the bowl. God's anger has reached its boiling point. 21 plagues are unleashed on the rebel planet. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. First seven seals are broken. The seven seals on the, on, the, on the deed to the earth are broken. God is taking back possession. And each seal unleashes a plague. Then seven trumpets are blown. And with each blast comes another judgment. And then finally seven bowls are emptied out on the earth. God is pouring out a devastating destruction. Isaiah here notes, during this time, the Lord makes the earth empty. The the word empty means depopulate. He depopulates the earth. In Revelation, the fourth seal kills one quarter of the world's population. The sixth trumpet annihilates another one third. The net result is the death of about half the world's population. At today's count, that would be three billion people. Devastating judgments are destined for this planet, for the rebel planet. He also says that God distorts the earth's surface. In other words, literally, God brings such uh, natural catastrophes that he wrenches the crust of the earth. The sixth seal describes a great earthquake and cosmic cataclysms. Here verse 2 continues the judgment. And it shall be... As with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. In other words, God's judgments will be equal opportunity torment. He says, the land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. This is what has caused God's anger to reach a boiling point. Because people are rewriting the laws, he says. People are changing the ordinances. I mean, this is the world we live in today. People are trying to rewrite the laws of God That have applied to all people in all times. For example, they're trying to change the ordinance of marriage to now include homosexual unions. This is unprecedented, I hope you know. Even in cultures where homosexuality has been tolerated, no one has ever suggested that it should be given the same status as marriage. We've gone nuts. We've defied nature and God and His laws and His word. We've gone nuts. The world today is tinkering with laws of which it knows nothing about. He says, therefore the curse has devoured devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Revelation 16, 8 and 9 reads, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. Even that sunblock you put on your baby, you know, that 35 SPF stuff, 
That's not going to work. You're going to get burned. You're going to get scorched. Perhaps an explosion on the sun's surface sends a pulse of radiation earthward. Our depleted ozone gets sort of hit by a solar tsunami. You know, in the Great Tribulation, Mother Nature is going to go nuts. I mean, PM, she's going to have a bad case of PMS. She's going to go berserk. Cosmic disasters, geological cataclysms are going to become daily occurrences. Now what triggers God uses to set off these calamities, we're not sure. A meteor strike, perhaps? A runaway comet? The near flyby of a neighboring planet? A nuclear catastrophe? It's interesting though, what modern science refuses to talk about is that these phenomena have occurred before. In fact, they've occurred quite frequently on the planet. You know, evolutionists like to assume that the earth has operated for billions of years just as it does today. It's called the theory of uniformitarianism. The problem is that's just not true. Look on the moon's surface. Even look on the earth's surface. You find craters all over the planet. I mean, we've been struck countless times by cosmic projectiles. You know, it's interesting that all the ancient cultures had a 360-day year, 12 30-day months. Why are we off kilter? Why are we now 365 and some fraction uh, day year? Why does the earth have a wobble? It's because something knocked us off its axis. Noah's flood, the exodus, Joshua's long day. These were all irregularities of nature. And I believe the earth will once again be struck with terrible upheavals. Cosmic cataclysms. It's coming in the last days. Now verse 7 tells us, The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. In other words, happy hour is not going to last forever. It's not always going to be Miller time. Soon, God is going to crash the party. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, desolation is left. And the gate is stricken with destruction. Think of the chaos that's going to occur in the streets of big cities around the world when all of this ruin comes in the last days to the world's largest metropolises. Think of what it'll be like inside New L.A. or New York or Paris or London. When all of this happens. He says, when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. In the great tribulation, some people will turn to God and praise Him. Others will mourn their own ruin. And then he says, fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. Notice the earth's three enemies here. The fear... The pit and the snare. 
The pit is the abuso or Hades. It's the bottomless pit Jesus talked about. In Revelation 9, terrible creatures, demonic creatures, rise up from the pit to torment mankind. And you remember how men try to cope? They blow their brains out, but they can't die. Death takes a vacation. And God allows men to suffer these torments. Not even death is an escape. Verse 18, And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundation of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut, literally a hammock. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. This earth is literally going to get knocked off its hinges. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth. The day is coming when God is going to judge prideful kings and fallen angels. He's going to judge kings of the earth and the host of heaven. Then will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. They will be gathered together. And will be shut up in the prison. After many days they shall be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced. And the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem before his elders. Gloriously. All nature, moon and sun, was defiled by mankind's sin. And yet our fallen world will one day be redeemed. Jesus will return. And he will reign and rule from the temple mount in Jerusalem. He will reign over heaven and earth. I think one of my favorite spots in Jerusalem is to go to the temple mount. And we stand in the very spot from which I believe Jesus will one day rule the entire universe. And I tell you, it it is a phenomenal thing to go there and to stand in that spot and know that you're standing in the place that Jesus is going to set up his throne one day and rule the universe. Absolutely incredible. Today, God's kingdom is spiritual. Jesus reigns in human hearts. But one day, his kingdom will be Physical and visible and tangible and mighty. And in that day, Jesus' prayer will finally have been answered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.